Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Mosiah chapter 11. Zenith's first person record has now ended, and we move forward in this parallel timeline, this record of Zenith, to his successor. With Zenith's rather perfunctory description of his son or successor at the end of the previous chapter, we are left to wonder much about this new ruler. We're not even given his name. We are only told by Zenith at the end of uh, chapter 10 that I did confer the kingdom upon one of my sons, therefore I say no more. We are left to wonder then, uh, not only about that, but also regarding the nature of this new ruler. Uh, Will he carry the tradition of righteous and industrious living that Zenith has established? We are given no such assurance at the end of this chapter. Uh, That much is sure. So why is this? Well, we learn the answer to this question and many more as we turn the page and move into Mosiah chapter 11. As we do so, we can also notice that we are moving back into Mormon's own language. His third-person writing and editing style is immediately apparent as he opens this chapter. We are now back to his abridgment of the record of Zenith, after being afforded the unique opportunity to hear from Zenith himself in the previous two chapters. So did Zenith's unnamed successor keep a record? Uh, We do not know. Uh, But from this point forward, we can see that the record of this parallel Nephite kingdom is abridged and retold by Mormon. As Mormon begins this chapter then, Mosiah's chapter 11, We are given the name of Zenith's son and successor. Ironically, he is named after the ancient patriarch who in the book of Genesis was described as a just man and perfect in his generations, and that, of course, is Noah. And why is this name connection so ironic? Well, because this Noah is far different than his namesake, and although he seems to share his father's verbal gifts and a penchant for kingdom building, He is also far different from Zenith, for we are told in this opening verse that, quote, Noah did not walk after the ways of his father. By opening the chapter this way, we can see that Noah's unrighteousness is immediately a part of the story of his reign. Mormon, and remember, this is the same writer who told us of the righteousness of Benjamin, who, by the way, is probably ruling in Zarahemla at the same time Noah takes the throne in the land of Nephi. Uh, Mormon tells us the story of King Noah's wickedness, his lechery, his debauchery, and his idolatry, really topping off, to use a play on words, the description that ends this first section of the chapter with the image of a wine-bibber, a producer or a purveyor of this final trapping of an indulgent lifestyle, uh, one that, despite their substantial taxation, did trickle down to the people to the degree that they seemed pleased enough to, as Mormon puts it in verse 6, labor exceedingly to support iniquity. Noah is the first wicked king to be described in Mormon's abridgment then. And if all kings between Nephi and Mosiah 1 remained true, then Noah is the first actual wicked king to take the Nephite throne. Of this distinction we cannot be sure, but we can see the tragic contrast of a wicked king who assumed the throne in a land once ruled in righteousness by Nephi himself. This is a disappointing and certainly an unsavory association, to be sure. 
And as Mormon points out the ways of Noah's wickedness, uh, we will see the contrast between Noah and his earlier description of King Benjamin. Uh, Noah is truly the antithesis of this counterpart in Zarahemla. Both of these kings will later be used by Mosiah in Mosiah 29 as the extremes that a king can go to in either direction along the continuum of righteousness. Uh, Verse 18 in Mosiah chapter 19 will say, Yea, remember King Noah, says Mosiah, his wickedness and his abominations, and also the wickedness and abominations of his people. Behold, what great destruction did come upon them, and also because of their iniquities they were brought into bondage. As with Zenith, there is a lot to King Noah. As readers, we can make the mistake of reducing Noah down to the unidimensionality of a cartoon villain. Many of us have a particular Freebergian image, we might say, of a portly figure who's sitting skeptically upon his throne as he is addressed by Abinadi. But Noah was more than that. He was a builder, and like his father, he must have had a talent for administration. And despite the undesirability of the taxes he imposed, the people still supported him. In this, they were simultaneously victimized by him and really complicit with him. We know that the latter point is true, because as Abinadi appears in the final scene of this chapter, his message is to all the people, not just to King Noah. He isn't only rejected by King Noah, he is rejected and in fact hunted, as the final verse of the chapter tells us, by the entire populace. Now, the middle scene of this chapter provides a variation on the same theme as the previous two chapters of the Record of Zenith. It's an attack by the Lamanites from the neighboring land of Shemlon. In this instance, the Lamanites are met by a Nephite army that displays great strength. But this time, it is not the strength of the Lord that was on display, as it was in the previous two instances in Mosiah chapters 9 and 10. Abinadi's appearance among the people marks the first description of a prophetic character of this sort, one who emerges among the people and cries repentance. At least that's the case in Mormon's abridgment, um, as we have them today. Uh, The small plates of Nephi, uh, the beginning of the Book of Mormon as we have it, did introduce Lehi in this same way, as he went forth and cried repentance among the people. But for the way that Mormon's abridgment presents to us today, this is our first opportunity to read of such a character, Uh, described by Mormon himself. And Abinadi's influence will loom large throughout the remainder of this story. At the end of the chapter, he will disappear for a time, uh, two years, as the beginning of chapter 12 will tell us, and then returning again to bring his message back to a people who, by that point, are truly ripened in iniquity. Abinadi will truly challenge these people to whom he speaks to repent and live their religion, He delivers the words of the Lord with this unmistakable preface in verse 20, Thus saith the Lord. We too are challenged by Abinadi's message as we consider any ways in which we might resemble the people of Noah's kingdom, and there are ways. These were people who were in their heightened prosperity, who could barely imagine the prospect of bondage and the need for deliverance. But as we well know, since we know how their story will go in the record of Zenith, Their bondage is imminent, and their need for deliverance will be dire. Now, as we look at the structure of this incredible chapter, it almost unfolds in three scenes. The first uh, discusses King Noah's reign and how it begins, and of course, the nature of his reign. And this is in verses 1 all the way through to verse 15. Once Mormon lays all of this out and uh, paints this picture of King Noah, we then see again this same theme, this same battle scene that plays out uh, that we saw playing out against the people of Zenith in the previous two chapters. Uh, And so we see that in verses 16 uh, through 19. Once again, the Lamanites are victorious uh, as they were in the previous two chapters. So We'll talk about that, but even though they were victorious, these circumstances are very different, and they mark a dramatic shift in the fate of these people. Then the final scene of this chapter, we might say, 
is in verse 20. And uh, this extends through the end uh, of the chapter through uh, verse 29, uh, although we, we see the people's response to Abinadi in verses 26 through 29 more specifically. Uh, but this is the emergence of Abinadi among the people. So we read his message, and he delivers it, as I mentioned earlier, by saying, Thus saith the Lord at the opening of this in verse 20. And then his message ends, the message that's coming directly from the Lord. He seems to be quoting the words of the Lord as he goes uh, through verse 25. Then once again, we read of the people's reception of Abinadi. um, And find interestingly in verse 26, the same phrase that was used to describe the Lamanites in the previous chapter, that they were wroth with Abinadi. The people sought from that time forward to take him to take Abinadi. Uh, we learn that in verse 29, the final verse. And in verse 28, uh, Noah says very uh, specifically that he wants to slay him. And he says that twice in that verse. So we can tell as we open the next chapter that in response to this, Abinadi went into hiding for a period of two years. So of course, we'll come back to his story uh, in chapter 12. Now returning to a reading of this chapter, to verse 1. And now it came to pass that Zenith conferred the kingdom upon Noah, one of his sons. Therefore Noah began to reign in his stead, and he did not walk in the ways of his father. So, Mormon kind of makes up for that very perfunctory description of the transfer of the throne at the end of Mosiah chapter 10, and gives us the details that we're craving as we finish that previous chapter. We find that his name is Noah, and we find that he does not walk in the ways of his father. Verse 2, For behold, he did not keep the commandments of God, but he did walk after the the desires of his own heart. That's a very interesting phrase, that he did walk after the desires of his own heart. Uh, It's it's almost uh, in our in our pop culture today uh, walking after the desires of one's own heart uh, sounds almost laudable but this uh, instead seems to be the basis of Noah's problem uh, and then Mormon outlines some seven or eight offenses that all seem to um, stem from immorality and as we're about to be told in this verse and really from from taxation and the material indulgence that came from that. So as verse 2 continues, And he had many wives and concubines, and he did cause his people to commit sin, and do that which was abominable in the sight of the Lord. Yea, and they did commit whoredoms, and all manner of wickedness. We were back in the land of Nephi when reading the small plates and reading of Jacob's temple sermon, and Jacob introduced us to that concept of having many wives and concubines, and how grievous that was to the Lord. So at that time in the land of Nephi, in that early time, that was an issue. Uh, This time uh, in the land of Nephi, this issue is on display by the king himself. And so no wonder it is that Mormon says that the king, King Noah, did cause his people to commit sin, uh, because that, that would have affected Again, the entire populace. Here is some uh, helpful description by Bruce R. McConkie, taken mostly from Mormon doctrine, um, as to what a concubine is and and what that can mean for their manner of living at this time and what it is that uh, Noah was doing. Concubines in the Old Testament were considered to be secondary wives, that is, wives who did not have the same standing in the caste system then prevailing, as did those wives who were not called concubines. In the time of King Noah, however, the word concubines referred to the wicked practice of a man living with more than one woman, in or out of marriage, without God's approval. The word whoredoms, as we see it in Mosiah chapter 11, verse 2, refers to any perversion of the laws of chastity and virtue. King Noah abused his power and spent his time in riotous living. Kings such as David and Solomon went to excess in a plurality of wives and concubines. In modern times, a concubine is a woman who cohabits with a man without being his wife. But all down through the history of God's dealings with his people, 
including those with the house of Israel, concubines were legal wives married to their husbands in the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Anciently, they were considered to be secondary wives. That is, wives who did not have the same standing in the caste system then prevailing, as did those wives who were not called concubines. There were no concubines connected with the practice of plural marriage in this dispensation because the caste system which caused such wives to be so designated did not exist. Now that Mormon has established this in his description of King Noah, he tells us this in verse 3, And he laid a tax of one-fifth part of all they possessed, a fifth part of their gold, and of their silver, and a fifth part of their ziff, and of their copper, and of their brass, and of their iron, and a fifth part of their fatlings, and also a fifth part of all their grain. So this fifth part is spanning really all of their increase all aspects of industry here, uh, agricultural and uh, from a manufacturing perspective, we might say. Monty Nyman said this with respect to taxation. One change in the affairs of Noah's kingdom was a heavy taxation upon the people, one-fifth of all they possessed. The amount of taxes seems a warning to us as a nation and to any nation who possesses this land of promise. And Thomas R. Valletta in his Book of Mormon Study Guide says, In addition, Mormon's inclusion of excessive taxation alerts the reader to the Old Testament code commanding kings not to multiply to themselves additional wives or gold. That's out of Deuteronomy chapter 17. Now to the question in verse 4 that we all ask when our taxes are levied from us. Where do they go and what are these monies used for? In verse 4, And all this did he, meaning Noah, take to support himself, and his wives and his concubines, and also his priests and their wives and their concubines. Thus he had changed changed the affairs of the kingdom. So this is a kingdom where up to this point, Zenoph had probably labored with his own hands alongside the people. Uh, We don't ever get that exact language like we did uh, with King Benjamin, but we do know that Zenoph fought alongside the people. And even when he was very old, as he told us in the previous chapter, and that he worked alongside them to bury their dead after battle in Mosiah chapter 9. It's fair to guess then that Zenoph did not tax his people for his own subsistence, uh, as we're seeing here that Noah did, and then we can see that Noah did this to excess. So now verse 5 Uh, regarding Noah, for he put down all the priests that had been consecrated by his father and consecrated new ones in their stead. Uh, So this is intimated in the previous verse because we can see that uh, Noah's priests and their concubines were living in the same manner and were being supported by these tax monies. And so that that makes us wonder, uh, what priests are we talking about? Were Zenith's priests willing to go along with this new way of living? Well, it turns out in verse 5, again, that Noah put down those priests and he replaced them with new like-minded priests. Interestingly, as we know, as we go on with this record, uh, Alma was among them, uh, the great character Alma, who we will uh, benefit so much from as the record goes on. Then this verse ends by saying, such as were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. So that was Uh, the main qualifier that Mormon is providing with us here for those who uh, could be hired, so to speak, by Noah as a priest. This does bring up questions of priesthood authority as we think about these priests that were in King Noah's court. And uh, here's some commentary from McConkie and Millet on that point. The priests of Noah were corrupt, and their priesthood one of defilement and debauchery, of interest but unclear in the Book of Mormon is what authority, if any, the priests had who were consecrated by Zenith, assuming Zenith to have been properly ordained. It may well be that Alma traced his authority to this source. Daniel Peterson said this in an article called Authority in the Book of Mosiah. In the secondary Nephite kingdom that endured briefly in the land of Nephi, I've, of course, have called this a parallel timeline a lot, or a parallel kingdom, and this is a nice way to put it. Peterson is calling it the secondary Nephite kingdom. 
because it's secondary in the sense that there once was a Nephite kingdom there before that began with Nephi, ended in Mosiah 1, when Mosiah 1 left. But it's also a secondary Nephite kingdom because it's uh, parallel to the main Nephite kingdom that uh, is in Zarahemla at this time. So again, uh, Daniel Peterson says, in the second Nephite kingdom that endured briefly in the land of Nephi, Zenith exercised his right as ruler and ordained priests. It will be recalled, of course, that they were then dismissed by his son and successor, Noah. In their place, Noah ordained his own priests, who would presumably be more pliable in his hands. Later, when Noah's priests were on the run, it is noteworthy that the king of the Lamanites also appointed them as teachers among his people. We must, of course, keep in mind that Amulon, who is this priest, and his associates do not appear to have exercised priestly functions under the Lamanites. They had never really had much interest in such things, it would seem, and so their teaching among the Lamanites, uh, Nephite language, record-keeping, and a literacy program, was entirely secular. Now, as Mormon continues in verse 6, and we're talking about the king and his priests here in this verse, when the word they is used, Yea, and thus they were supported in their laziness. In other words, they're supported by the taxation of the people, and in their idolatry, and in their whoredoms, by the taxes which King Noah had put upon his people. Thus, the Mormon says, did the people labor exceedingly to support iniquity. So, Mormon is saying that the net result here uh, is that these citizens uh, are supporting iniquity, and they're working hard to do it. So, no citizenry wants this, of course. Uh, It leads to internal unrest in a nation. And, of course, we'll see how this um, plays out as the story goes on. Uh, However, uh, it's not clear to the majority of the people that this is what they're doing, it seems. Uh, and, And we get this from the next verse, because it says, Yea, and they, meaning the people, also became idolatrous, because they were deceived by the vain and flattering words of the king and priests, for they did speak flattering things unto them. So this seems to be the compensating uh, benefit that is coming from their extra taxation, is that they are being spoken to in a vain and flattering manner. That seems like uh, a small compensation to me for being taxed so hev- heavily, so it might suggest to us that the nature of those vain and flattering things were things that um, propped up prosperity, because this was certainly a new era of prosperity uh, during Noah's rule, and that it was also a vain and flattering doctrine, probably, that, that accommodated more lax, idolatrous, and immoral behavior. So the people were made to feel better in this way about their support of this iniquity. Now we learn of Noah's building campaign. He is a builder, and he is taking this kingdom to new heights of prosperity. Verse 8, And it came to pass that King Noah built many elegant and spacious buildings, and he ornamented them with fine work of wood and of all manner of precious things, of gold and of silver and of iron and of brass and of ziff and of copper. This, of course, is not the first time that metals are discussed in the Book of Mormon, uh, but it is interesting to see uh, iron among these things that are listed. Uh, Of course, ziff is a kind of obscure and unknown word to us, but here's something from John Welch. When iron was scarce, it was used as a precious decorative metal. Often beds or jeweled boxes were not of solid iron, but they were plated, veneered, or studded with iron. With such a point in mind, we can reread the account of King Noah, who built many elegant buildings and ornamented them with fine work of wood and of all manner of precious things, of gold and of silver, and of iron. <laughs> and of course, in our age, iron seems out of place among those other luxurious items, and that's Welch's point here. Although a person today would not normally think of using iron as a precious decoration, we can now see that this was actually done in antiquity. Now, verse 9, And he, Noah, also built him a spacious palace, and a throne in the midst thereof, all of which was of fine wood, and was ornamented with gold and silver, and with precious things. And he caused that his workmen should work all manner of fine work within the walls of the temple. So we've talked about the the king's throne. Now we're learning that the temple itself is being altered 
Is this the same temple that Nephi had built when he settled in the land of Nephi in 2 Nephi chapter 5? Hard to say, but probably. Now we find uh, what he did to this temple. He, he, He created fine work within the walls of the temple of fine wood and of copper and of brass. If we really think about it here then, we can see that Noah reworked the priesthood itself in a sense by dismissing Zenith's priests and appointing his own who um, were more like-minded once again. And now he is reworking the temple itself. Uh, so Noah is on very spiritually perilous ground. Verse 11, And the seats which were set apart for the high priests, which were above all the other seats, he did ornament with pure gold. And he caused a breastwork to be built upon them, or built before them, that they might rest their bodies and their arms upon them, while they should speak lying and vain words to his people. This is the second time in this chapter, then, that we learn about Noah's um, vain uh, words. Uh, It's in verse 7, where it says that he spoke vain and flattering words uh, with the help of his priests to the people, which made them feel better about their taxation. And then we find again in verse 11 that he spoke lying and vain words to his people. So Noah uh, must have inherited his father's verbal gifts. Zenith was was clearly verbally gifted. As we've read what we have so far, it it really couldn't be any other way for Zenith to have accomplished what he did without being so. Uh, Noah is using these gifts, it seems, in, in other ways. It might remind one of a statement by Elder Maxwell, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said that small equivocations in parents lead to large deviations in their children, or at least can. Now, verse 12, and it came to pass that he built a tower near the temple. So now uh, a new structure. Yea, a very high tower even so high that he could stand upon the top thereof and overlook the land of Shilom. Now that's their own land, as we'll remember, that uh, Zenith and his people settled, and also the land of Shemlon. And we learned about that city previously in the previous chapter when spies were sent to the land of Shemlon to see the manner of preparation of the the Lamanites when they were preparing for war. And uh, that's confirmed in this verse because it says the land of Shemlon, which was possessed by the Lamanites. And he could even look over all the land round about. So that particular tower is notable among the structures that Noah built. But then we find in verse 13, it came to pass that he caused many buildings to be built in the land of Shilom. And he caused a great tower to be built on the hill north of the land Shilom, which had been a resort for the children of Nephi at the time they fled out of the land. We'll come back to that. And thus he did do with the riches which he obtained by the taxation of his people. We're kind of gathering from this then that Shilom uh, must be the headquarters. We know that when Zenith went in to the land of Nephi, that again, he was allowed by treaty uh, from King Laman to occupy the city of Lehi-Nephi, the city of Shilom, and uh, the, the surrounding lands. Uh, Shilom, um, as, as we've read earlier, could have a relationship to the word shalom or the word peace. So it's of great interest if we really think about that because the word Jerusalem also has those elements in it. And Nephi, of course, is carrying Hebrew culture forward as he comes into the land of Nephi and establishes this place, as we read in 2 Nephi 5, and he establishes his reign. So it could be that the city in, in that, that functioned as the headquarters of the land of Nephi when Nephi began to reign was the city called Shilom, which may phonetically uh, be the same as the land of Salem, or the land of Shalom, or the land of peace, uh, very much like the land of Jerusalem. And so their concept may have been that this land Shilom was a new Jerusalem. When Mosiah, uh, Mosiah II, son of Benjamin, sent Ammon to the land of Nephi, And when Ammon went to the land of Nephi and found Limhi, he first came to a hill, and that's the first place that he came to after wandering for 40 days. And it says that this hill was north of the land of Shilom, and there they pitched their tents. So that's the reference here uh, when Mormon tells us that Noah built a tower on this very same hill, which had been a resort for the children of Nephi at the time they fled out of the land. Uh, 
That's our reference point. Uh, however, Mormon seems to be describing a story uh, that we, we simply don't know. Uh, and perhaps it was recorded in the uh, lost manuscript. Then we get this final statement in verse 13 again, uh, kind of summarizing, and thus he did do with the riches which he obtained by the taxation of his people. If we were to categorize Noah's wickedness more broadly then, it all seems to fall under the first two offenses that are mentioned in this chapter. The first is gross immorality, and the second is high taxation and everything that came out of that. McConkie and Millet wrote in their um, doctrinal commentary on the Book of Mormon, an earmark of false religion is its attempt to hide its emptiness in such things as pomp and ceremony, grandeur and elegance. The purpose of great and spacious buildings, ornate and decor, is to create a sense of uh, reverence and awe that otherwise would be lacking. Gold and silver, silks and scarlets, magnificent treasures of art and craftsmanship, Buildings of enormous size and expense, such are the trappings of the kingdoms of this world and the cloak of the god of that which is worldly. Now, as in other passages of Scripture where we discover that the, the real problem with riches is when that is what we desire in our hearts, verse 14 says, And it came to pass that he, Noah, placed his heart upon his riches, and he spent his time in riotous living with his wives and his concubines. And so did also his priests spend their time with harlots. And it came to pass that he planted vineyards round about in the land, and he built wine presses and made wine in abundance. And therefore he became a wine bibber and also his people. So this tendency towards wine was, was certainly one of the trappings of luxury that um, Noah had clearly established with these large edifices and towers and building up the temple. And so part of, what, uh, his, uh, part of his campaign of this new way of life for these people was, was to make wine in abundance. And uh, this became a tendency, as we can see at the end of this verse, of the populace more generally, and also his people, as it says. So that's maybe the third offense that Mormon lists, and is undoubtedly a stark contrast to King Benjamin. Now, as we move into what we could call the next scene of this chapter, uh, we know from Zenith's own account that we've read in the two previous chapters that the Lamanites were never far away. Uh, despite the people's attempts to insulate themselves from the Lamanites, and the tower that uh, Noah built was no doubt helpful in this regard, since one could see into the land of Shemlon with that tower, uh, so the Lamanites were always close, and the return in this instance that we'll see beginning in verse 16 of the Lamanites to battle, coming upon the Nephites again, is really the same theme that we saw in the previous two chapters, where in, in chapter 9 of Mosiah, uh, we're given the numbers, um, uh, over 300 Nephites are killed, and over, uh, what, I think it was close to 300 Nephites that were killed, 276 maybe. And then uh, uh, just over 3,000 Lamanites were killed in that battle. Then the number of those who are killed in the next battle in Mosiah chapter 10 is not uh, mentioned. They're, they're not numbered because of the greatness of their numbers. Uh, so we know that, but we get the sense that the proportions are the same where very few Nephites died, and a lot of Lamanites died. Uh, again, in those two chapters, we know that they uh, warred with the Lamanites in righteousness, and they did so in the strength of the Lord. In this battle that we're about to read of, it seems that the outcome is similar in terms of numbers because of the way in which they boast, and we'll read of that in just a moment. The important part to take from this is although the same theme occurs in this chapter, it is a very new variation because this time the people are unrighteous and they are not defending themselves in the strength of the Lord. So going to verse 16, And it came to pass that the Lamanites began to come in upon his people, upon small numbers, and to slay them in their fields and while they were tending their flocks. And we read of that same thing beginning to happen uh, in Mosiah chapter 9, after their first 12 peaceful years, this same thing started to happen. 
Now it's happening again under Noah's rule. And King Noah sent guards round about the land to keep them off, but he did not send a sufficient number. And the Lamanites came upon them and killed them and drove many of their flocks out of the land. Thus the Lamanites began to destroy them and to exercise their hatred upon them. Surely this hatred must have been magnified during this new era as the Lamanites saw the increase in Nephite prosperity. They would have seen this tower rising up that looked over the land of Shemlon, for example. It's curious that Noah did not send a sufficient number of guards to take care of this problem. He clearly underestimated its nature, which speaks to his hubris and his lack of military vision. Now verse 18, And it came to pass that King Noah sent his armies against them, and they were driven back, or they drove them back for a time. Therefore they returned rejoicing in their spoil. So Mormon is quick to clarify that they drove them back, but really it's only for a time. Yet, again, in their hubris, they returned rejoicing in their spoil. Here's what they said in verse 19. And now because of this great victory, they were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. They did boast in their own strength, saying that their 50 could stand against thousands of the Lamanites. Again then, apparently a similar outcome uh, in this war as the two previous that we read in the two previous chapters. Uh, It must be that not many Nephites died in this particular war, but that thousands of Lamanites did. But this is because the Nephites were in their own strength, not in the strength of the Lord. And this will soon turn, as we know. And thus they did boast and did delight in blood and the shedding of the blood of their brethren, and this because of the wickedness of their king and priests. That brings us to the end of this episode within this chapter then, and gives us an even more complete picture of the level of apostasy that these people were in. And uh, uh, Brant Gardner said, said this in his book Second Witness, Mormon is painting a picture of a people in apostasy from which they will be called to repentance by Abinadi. This setup necessitates our understanding of the fallen nature of Noah and his people. Their sins include the pride of their hearts. They achieved a victory, but ascribe it to their own strength and forget their God. Even worse, they did delight in blood and the shedding of the blood of their brethren. So now as we move into verse 20, we are introduced to this new character who appears. And it came to pass that there was a man among them. That's of interest too, because Abinadi is so different, it seems, from the people. He's spiritually in such a different place, and that becomes more and more clear as this narrative goes on. We wonder, where did he come from, and how could he have been so apart from them? Uh, But we see here that he was a man among them. As we'll see, and as we've already discussed uh, previously, he'll have to hide, so he'll go into hiding but then Abinadi will re-emerge among the people, and when he does re-emerge, he's basically taken by the people and then brought before the king, uh, brought before the ruler. This pattern is played out in the Sherem story in Jacob. It's also played out in the Korahor story. However, in this instance, of course, Abinadi is a righteous character. Back to this question, though, of how did Abinadi uh, emerge among these people uh, and, and how was it that he remained so holy? Uh, the latter question is, um, is, is, a, is a broader question that's not answered directly by the text. But the previous question, um, we can wonder uh, if Abinadi was actually born in the land of Nephi. That's possible because Zenith's rule seems to have gone for some 35 years. So Abinadi could have been younger and could have been born during Zenith's rule. Uh, but if he was a little older, which we, we, we kind of imagine that he was because he seems to reflect the wisdom of age as he goes on and speaks, uh, we, we, we could guess then that he would have gone with Zenith. And um, it just seems like he wouldn't have shared Zenith's mindset or the mindset of the people who wanted to leave a place of spiritual safety, go to Nephi and colonize this place. So we almost have to wonder if Abinadi was sent by assignment, uh, perhaps 
uh, Benjamin, who was probably ruling at the time that um, Zenith went into the land of Nephi, maybe King Benjamin assigned this of Abinadi and, and uh, told him to go with Zenith and the people so that they would have the benefit of a prophet among them. We kind of wonder, and again, that's that's pure conjecture, but it, it is interesting in verse 20 how it says that there came to pass a man among them. And as we'll see, he is clearly a holy man. Now, as the verse goes on, whose name was Abinadi, and he went forth among them and began to prophesy, saying, Behold, thus saith the Lord, and thus hath he commanded me, saying, Go forth and say unto this people, Thus saith the Lord. So before Abinadi simply launches into his message, he credentials himself and makes it very clear that he was spoken to by the Lord and commanded by the Lord to say exactly what it is that he is about to say. So as Nephi had said earlier, it is not, it's not a requirement coming from me, but it's a commandment of the Lord. So thus saith the Lord, and now Abinadi moves into his message, Woe be unto this people, for I have seen their abominations and their wickedness and their whoredoms, and except they repent, I will visit them in mine anger. So even though the effect of the Lord seeing such wickedness and whoredoms, because of the nature of our probationary state, and the nature of agency, because of the effect of his all-seeing eye is not immediately apparent to those who are, are, are living this lifestyle, it doesn't mean that he doesn't see them. And uh, Benedict is making that clear here. Robert J. Matthews uh, wrote an Ensign article called Abinadi and said this, The prophet Abinadi holds a singular place in the Book of Mormon. He was the first to die as a martyr, and his doctrinal teachings clarify the purpose of the Law of Moses, identify the Redeemer, and declare facts about the doctrine of resurrection not previously mentioned in the book. He was capable of exquisite language, sparked with fiery metaphor, yet was plain spoken to the point of bluntness. So far as we know, he converted but one man. Yet that one man, Alma, became the progenitor of a posterity that kept the sacred records and served as the ecclesiastical leaders, and sometimes the political leaders, for the remainder of the Nephites' history, a period of well over 400 years. This piece of commentary, I think, is of great interest as we consider who Abinadi was and the meaning of his name, and this is from Clark in an article called The Type. This comes out of Thomas R. Valletta's Book of Mormon Study Guide. Unfortunately, the um, citations at the end of his book, uh, mistakenly, I guess, don't include uh, Clark in, in the bibliography, and so I, I don't know his first name. Uh, but this is Clark, the type. He says, The spelling of the name Abinadi suggests an analogy to the Hebrew word Eben, meaning rock or stone. We could say, following the parallel to Christ, that Abinadi himself appears among the people as a foundation stone to be rejected. Um, see, see the connection between that and Psalms 118, verse 22, which says uh, very famously, the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. Then Clark continues, And yet, as Jacob makes clear in Jacob chapter 4, it is upon the stone that is rejected that we are able to and must build. This being the mystery that Jacob sets out to unfold, how it is possible to build upon this rejected stone, the stone that Abinadi typifies and to which he testifies. We can consider for a moment while we're pausing and thinking about Abinadi, uh, about the entire effect of his ministry. And uh, President M. Russell Ballard uh, described this very well in an October conference report in 2004. He said, Abinadi infuriated wicked King Noah with his courageous testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we'll see how this becomes true. Eventually, this great missionary offered the ultimate sacrifice for his witness and faith, but not before his pure testimony touched one believing heart. Alma, one of the King Noah's priests, repented of his sins, accepted Jesus as the Christ, and went about privately among the people and began to teach the words of Abinadi. And uh, we, of course, will read about this when we come to Alma's story in Mosiah chapter 18. Many were converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ as a direct result of Abinadi's powerfully born testimony of the Savior, believed by one soul, Alma. Now, as we move forward, we, we have the, the hope of that good thing which is to come uh, with the effect of Abinadi's words upon Alma. But our task now is to read this message that Abinadi is delivering to this very brazen people 
and we're going to see what the effect of that message is. So verse 21, Abinadi continues with his Thus saith the Lord passage. And except they repent and turn to the Lord their God, behold, I will deliver them into the hands of their enemies. Yea, and they shall be brought into bondage, and they shall be afflicted by the hands of their enemies. Remember, Abinadi here is talking about bondage and being afflicted. Right at the time when their prosperity is on the rise, this message is coming on the heels of their recent military victory. And they have their new um, elevated life with elevated prosperity and buildings that are elevated into the sky, towers that can see into neighboring cities. This might make us think of the Tower of Babel and how it was elevated, and also about the great and spacious building in Lehi's vision and the way in which it is lifted up. So now Abinadi is introducing this concept of bondage, and the need for deliverance will follow, of course. Verse 22, And it shall come to pass that they shall know that I, the Lord, am their God, and am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of my people. That is old language that Abinadi is undoubtedly pulling from the brass plates. And we know that Abinadi will pull language from this same section of the brass plates later as he discusses the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses. Uh, This is his first kind of oblique reference to Exodus chapter 20, where in verse 5 it says, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Verse 23, And it shall come to pass that except this people repent and turn unto the Lord their God, they shall be brought into bondage, and none shall deliver them, except it be the Lord, the Almighty God. That too is ancient language, or at least it's an ancient notion that Abinadi could have been referencing from the brass plates. Hosea chapter 13 verse 10 says, I will be thy king, where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities. And thy judges of whom thou saidst, give me a king and princes. And here, Hosea is making a similar point, uh, or the Lord is making a similar point through him, saying that there, there really is no one else that can deliver him except the Lord, the Almighty God, as Abinadi is saying here. When we apply this more broadly and in a spiritual sense to the bondage of sin, we can see that this becomes abundantly true that it is only the Lord God, the Lord, the Almighty God, who can deliver us. Bruce R. McConkie said this from his new witness to the Articles of Faith, Before sinners can repent and gain the inestimable blessings that flow therefrom, they must come to a knowledge of the plan of salvation. Before they can free themselves from the bondage of sin and rejoice in the liberty of the Lord, they must know the part repentance plays in the gospel plan. To enable men to escape the bondage of sin, God provided a plan of redemption, a plan of mercy, a plan of repentance. Repentance is made available to men through the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Abinadi uh, says this in verse 24, Yea, and it shall come to pass that when they shall cry unto me, so he's saying there will be a time, you might not be able to imagine it, but there will be a time when you are in bondage, and you will cry unto the Lord. And Abinadi is saying, when that time comes, when they cry unto me, I will be slow to hear their cries. Yea, and I will suffer them, that they be smitten by their enemies. That too sounds like old language, and sounds very much uh, like the, the early Old Testament. Uh, this is not an old notion, however, and it doesn't simply reflect uh, the nature of a vindictive God who wants to separate himself from those who sin. But the real point is that those who sin separate themselves from God. It's the opposite phenomenon in play as the one that says that when we draw near unto God, he will draw near unto us. But even in this dispensation, something very similar was said. And it was in uh, Doctrine and Covenants, section 101, verses 7 through 8. This is with respect to the saints in Missouri the Lord told Joseph Smith that these saints were, quote, slow to hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God. Therefore, the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto their prayers, to answer them in the day of their trouble. In the day of their peace, they esteemed lightly my counsel, but in the day of their trouble, of necessity, they feel after me. 
that verse is, I think, almost chilling since we live in a time of relative peace and uh, prosperity just as the people of King Noah were. Verse 25, And except they repent in sackcloth and ashes and cry mightily to the Lord their God, I will not hear their prayers, neither will I deliver them out of their afflictions. And thus saith the Lord, and thus he commanded me. So there's the word deliver in verse 25. Uh, delivery is a point of interest through the entire record of Zenith. And uh, Zenith did mention it in the previous chapter. Then it becomes a major theme uh, in the story of Limhi and in the story of Alma. Uh, but here, deliverance is of no interest to Noah and his people, at least not yet. This phrase, sackcloth and ashes, is of interest as a means for repentance. Thomas Arvaletta wrote this in his Book of Mormon Study Guide. Sackcloth was a coarse, dark cloth made of goat or camel hair. It was typically worn by mourners as a symbol of their grief, humiliation, repentance, or dismay. And he's taking that from Gaskell, the lost language of symbolism. Wearing sackcloth was often accompanied with, quote, sitting among ashes or scattering them upon one's purpose as a symbol of grief and mourning. And Valletta is taking that out of Unger, the new Unger's Bible Dictionary. President Spencer W. Kimball described an association between sackcloth, ashes, and the mourning of sin required for full repentance. To every forgiveness, there is a condition. The plaster must be as wide as the sore. The fasting, the prayers, the humility must be equal to or greater than the sin. There must be a broken heart and a contrite spirit. There must be sackcloth and ashes. There must be tears and genuine change of heart. That's out of the miracle of forgiveness. Ogden and Skinner say this about repentance of this type. The only way to extricate ourselves from any kind of bondage is to cry out to the Lord. For that reason he is called the Savior. He can rescue us from any kind of physical, spiritual, intellectual, or emotional bondage that holds us captive, but not if we are rebellious. We have to be quick to observe his light before he will be quick to respond to our plight. Then Ogden and Skinner provide us with this summary as we come to the end of Abinadi's message. The character of King Noah, one of Zenith's sons, was not positive. He was not uh, he was disobedient and debauched, excessive and extravagant, sacrilegious and idolatrous, and flattering and deceiving. It is bad enough to sin, but far worse to cause others to sin, which Noah did. Noah had an edifice complex, constructing elegant public buildings and towers, and a palace and temple with fine woodwork and precious metals. He heavily taxed his people to finance all his public works. Noah and his accomplices in crime and sin, spent their time in drunkenness and riotous and promiscuous living. The people became bloodthirsty and boastful, so they were ripening for destruction. In such debased conditions came the warning voice of the prophet Abinadi. Abinadi is much like John the Baptist. The parallels are striking. Lone prophets ministering to two Law of Moses societies, both preaching repentance, both fulfilling the office of Elias in testifying of the Messiah, and both preparing the way for him, both were bold, both were colorful, and both were killed by wicked political rulers. Now in the final four verses of this chapter, we find uh, how the people responded to Abinadi's message. His thus saith the Lord message that we've just read was very powerful indeed, and we could imagine very optimistically that the people may have immediately uh, responded positively to his message. Uh, but because of the way this story is being set up by Mormon, I, I don't think we have a lot of hope in that. And in fact, in these four verses, we discover that they don't take well to his message. So verse 26, Now it came to pass that when Abinadi had spoken these words unto them, they were wroth with him. And they sought to take away his life, but the Lord delivered him out of their hands. We tend to remember the very end of Abinadi's story, but we can remember that at the very beginning of his story, the Lord delivered him out of their hands. This use of the phrase, they were wroth, uh, we were so unimpressed with that expression. It was used three times in the previous chapter 
when we were uh, learning about the false traditions of the Lamanites and this grievance narrative that they were carrying forward. Now Mormon is showing us that this same phrase is, is applicable to the Nephites. Uh, they have heretofore been the protagonists, but they've turned, and this story has become much more complex. And in fact, now deliverance is about to get this much more difficult. Verse 27 now, when King Noah had heard of the words which Abinadi had spoken unto the people, he was also wroth, and he said, Who is Abinadi, that I and my people should be judged of him? Or who is the Lord that shall bring upon my people such great affliction? Those two who is statements are brazen indeed, and uh, something that we'll come back to with some commentary in a moment. But this idea that the people are judged of Abinadi and that that is offensive is also a modern notion uh, that is often put back upon those who try to uphold the standard of righteousness. Uh, this is because uh, an ideal or a standard is automatically a judge to those who are out of alignment uh, with that standard or ideal. That's always how high and righteous ideals are seen by the wicked, who, as Nephi said, taketh the truth to be hard because it cutteth them to the very center. And so that's, that's the way they're responding to this. Uh, Laman and Lamuel told Nephi that he had spoken hard things unto them. But here the language is that Abinadi has judged us. That's wrong of him to do that. It's very similar to what we hear today. Then King Noah offers the same solution in verse 28 that Laman and Lemuel offered uh, in dealing with Nephi. It's the only thing they could think of. I command you, he says, to bring Abinadi hither that I may slay him. For he has said these things that he might stir up my people to anger one with another and to raise contentions among my people. In other words, we're doing well. We've uh, put down the Lamanites. We're living in peace and prosperity. Now we have this man who's coming among us, acting as a judge, and he is stirring my people to anger one with another, and he's raising contentions with them. And so then... Noah concludes again at the end of this verse, Therefore I will slay him. We can notice from this that destroying the enemy is really Satan's way. And we've seen that previously with Laman and Lemuel and their intentions towards Nephi. Whereas transforming the enemy is the Lord's way. And the Lord himself is so clear on that point when he appears in the meridian of time. Now the final verse, Now the eyes of the people were blinded. Therefore they hardened their hearts against the words of Abinadi, and they sought from that time forward to take him. So that, that's how he was received. This is how this prophet was received among the people. They did harden their hearts. It doesn't go as well as we optimistically thought it might. And from that time forward they sought to take him. And King Noah hardened his heart against the word of the Lord, and he did not repent of his evil doings. Ogden and Skinner uh, said this in summarizing this passage, Noah reacted insolently to the prophet, Who is Abinadi, that I and my people should be judged of him? Or who is the Lord that shall bring upon my people such great affliction? Such words are echoes of Cain, who said, Who is the Lord that I should know him? We have that in Moses chapter 5, verse 16. Or Pharaoh, who said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? It says that in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. And the people of Ammonihah, who said, Who is God that sendeth no more authority than one man among this people? That's out of Alma chapter 9, verse 6. Such defiant attitudes come from blinded minds and hardened hearts. Well, this, I think, gives us a great deal to think about and brings us to the end of this incredible chapter, Mosiah chapter 11. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse -verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide 
the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.